0: Just go through the motions. But, Lord, that you'd be pleased to meet with us, to stir our hearts. Lord, to speak to our hearts as your word has been opened. Father, we pray that in all that's said and done, that you'd be glorified and magnified above measure. Father, with a singleness of heart, may we all have a desire to see exalted here in our midst. Lord, help us to have everything put aside, Lord. I pray that our hearts, our minds would be set upon the right things. Lord, they'd captivate our hearts and our minds. And again, Lord, that we would be blessed, that we could be a blessing, and Lord, above all, that you'd be magnified here today. We ask all these things in the name of your precious Son. Amen. Thank you all. You all can be seated. I do want to, again, thank the church for the the opportunity to be be able to preach here this past week. I have thoroughly enjoyed my time up here, and I've enjoyed my time with Brother Holt. Um, I've not known him for very long, and uh, my dad said if I ever spent time with him, I'd really like him. Oh, how he was wrong. I'm just kidding. (laughs) i really enjoyed being with brother holt i uh i asked my brother one of my brothers me and him think a lot alike i said so what do you think about the whole he's like well like uh, what you see is what you get and uh as far as i can tell that's true unless there's something i don't know but it has been a blessing to be here this past week and i thank everyone for the hospitality and for you all's kindness uh jumping into our text here for today we're going to focus on verses three and four uh where's Seth are that I, I don't know if i wrote verses four and five it's three and four though just to be clear <laughs> uh When Jude writes to the church here, there seems to be a pressing problem that the church is facing, and that is the problem of apostasy. You'll notice in verse number three when he writes, he says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it seems that uh, Jude's initial desire was to once again write about the gospel of Jesus Christ, as many of the epistle writers had done. As a reminder, as an encouragement, and of course for the purpose of evangelism, to remind the church of all that Jesus Christ has done on the cross of Calvary. And so, as he introduces the letter, he says there in verse 1, "...Jude the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called." Now, what's interesting about this is as Jude opens up his epistle there, he identifies himself, as Peter had done, as a servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. History tells us that this is the Jude that would have been a half-brother to Jesus. And if you go back to the Gospel of John, uh, it seems that initially he wasn't actually a follower of Jesus until later. And it has always struck me how the Lord had used someone in such a powerful way, even though it was later in life. But he goes on to write, and he says there to them, that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. And Paul was to once now, again write about Jude the is writing to of Christians. Jesus Christ as many of the epistle writers More or less have apparent through all of the epistles. And, and this one is by no means an exception. And he says there again, they're sanctified by God. It's important to understand before we get to verse 3 and 4 that what's one of the many. Details that set Christianity apart from everything else in the world is that we are called by God. We're not called by a man. We're not called by some man's philosophy. Uh, We're not called by someone else's ideology and, and their new kind of moralism or their new way of life. But as Christians, what makes us different from everyone else is that we are called by God himself, We're not called by parents or grandparents or by a church or or by a pastor. Now, can can God use these people? Of course he can. But at the very heart of it, God is the one who has called each and every one of us, regardless of who you are, what you have done, what you haven't done, how how, how much you, you've accomplished for the glory of God, how far you fall short on a daily ba- basis while wrestling with the flesh. If you are in Christ, you are called by God and, and no one else It is a personal relationship between you and God. And again, that's what sets Christianity apart from every other thing. And he goes on to say in verse 1, and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Now, the idea there is that we are called by God, and this has been accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And it is through the continual work, it is through the everlasting work, maybe I should say, through Christ that we are preserved when Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, there's something interesting that he, he kind of, uh, he becomes, I don't know that it was necessarily sarcastic, but he, he, he challenges the Galatian church, and he, to paraphrase a little bit, he says, uh, did you begin the spirit, but now you're perfected in the flesh? And the problem was, it seems, that the church at Galatia, they full well acknowledged the gospel of Jesus Christ and its need and its importance to the salvation of a soul, but in regards to being kept, They had now gone to works. So, you know, we're saved by Christ, but, you know, we better keep the law of Moses just to be sure we're kept. What they failed to understand and what Paul was getting at is that we are saved and kept by Jesus Christ. God did not save us through the work of his son and then set us on neutral ground for us to make our way up to heaven from that point. But we are kept our entire lives by Jesus Christ. And Jude goes on to say, and called. And he goes on in verse number two, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. We heard about that last night. Now, and again, when we come to verse three, he says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. Again, there, there seems to be, it seems to be implied he was going to write once again of the gospel. He goes on to say, It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. So for, for whatever reason... And I I, I say this carefully because I don't know that this is exactly what was going on. But it seems that Jude felt led to write about the gospel. And as he was contemplating the church he was writing to, and he was contemplating those who'd read the epistle, the Spirit of the Lord led somewhere else. And so he goes on to tell us in verse 3, It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. So now Jude is saying, I, I was going to write about the common salvation, but now I want to encourage all of you how important it is that you earnestly contend for the faith. Now, what's interesting about this is that the idea behind contend is a, it's, it's a really big word. The the implication of the word contend, to my understanding, now I, I, I don't know, I couldn't I couldn't write or speak Greek to save my life. I've just heard that the word there carried the idea of, of almost this wrestling match or this physical engagement in the form of some kind of a fight. So the idea of contend there is not simply the idea of having a, this, this verbal sparring match that is somewhat shallow, but the idea is it's a struggle. It's a wrestle against someone else. Uh, I'll admit this now because I'll be leaving later this afternoon, so, so I'm good. Uh, I'm really ticklish, all right? I, I'm ashamed to admit that as a 30-year-old, I'm still ticklish. I always hoped I'd grow out of it, but I still haven't yet. Maybe when I'm 40, I, I'll tell you all if I see you all again at that point. I'm really ticklish. Now, because I'm really ticklish, I don't really like to be tickled. Uh, now, my little girl, she thinks it's funny, and, and in her little three-year-old way, she'll come up to and go, tickle, 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 and it doesn't really tickle. Don't tell her I said that, but it doesn't really tickle that much, you understand? Now, now contrast that with my dad and my three brothers where one is on each arm and each leg, and they all using the other hand to tickle me. Now that's different. And I will flail, and I will turn around, I will wrestle around, I will, I will kick, I will do whatever I have to do to get away from them. You understand the idea of contend there is, is more a picture of the second one. It, it's not this kind of fight, if you will, that I would have with my daughter who's trying to tickle me, but, but it's this idea that there's these, there are these big, strong, much uglier men than me to be clear for you, for you for those of you who have not met my, my brothers uh, they 're on top of me trying to do something to me that i don 't like now, of course, we understand that 's still in the context of a, of a friendly engagement, <laughs> if I could call it that so but the idea it 's the idea that you are under attack and you contend for your life, you are quite literally. Fighting for your life. And so Jude writes to the church and see he, he, he encourages the church. He says there again, uh, it was needful for me to write unto you that, uh, and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. So it's not that we just contend for the faith. It's that we earnestly contend for the faith. We don't sit passively back and, and say something here and then when we see wrong going on. But we earnestly contend for the faith. Now, really quick, before we leave this, I just I want us to understand what this does not mean. All right. First of all, this is not telling us to be needlessly offensive or obnoxious. I've known people. um, I've, I've known people, and they they make it their life's mission to tell anyone and everyone the truth. And there was one person in particular, and, and I count them to be, to, to, to be a, a sister in Christ at one point, I said, uh, I would joke with her because she, she would share what was on her mind. I said, I said, sister, the Bible says to speak the truth, but speak it in love. And she said, well, I'm speaking the truth anyway, aren't I? I said, but it's got to be in love. Now, now, there were times that These people, they would go out of their way to be obnoxious. And I tell you what, I don't think preachers ought to wear purple, and Brother Holt's got a purple tie. I'm going to tell him what I think about it. that's, That's not the calling. The Bible is not calling us to be needlessly offensive or obnoxious. Now, Again, there's a balance. Don't misunderstand. The truth will be offensive, and at times the truth will be obnoxious. Jesus even warns about that in Matthew 10, I think it is. There will be people who don't like us because the truth is offensive, but it is not our life's goal as Christians to be as offensive as we can be at the drop of a hat over any given topic. Likewise, there are some Christians who make it their life's mission that if there is one little thing another pastor or other church disagrees over, well, I am going to set them right. People will argue over the elements of the Lord's Supper, over these little things that in the end, they're just peripheral. But instead of being burdened to be an encouragement to another brother or sister, instead of being burdened to see people saved and to, to witness to these people... Oh, you mark their word. They will set you right on, on whatever it is. You fill in the blank. There are people who are more legalistic and pharisaical about things. And if you don't measure up to my standard of what is right, because I think you should not do this or you should do that, the gospel is never proclaimed to the end of salvation or exhortation. But I tell you what, you better not wear purple ties or, or whatever it is. Now, when the Bible tells us to contend for the faith, that's not what it's getting at. Again, we're not to pick a fight every time that there is some small kind of disagreement. And it especially does not mean we are to sacrifice witnessing at the altar of wanting to someone, wanting to make someone agree with us. The Lord convicted me of this years ago um, I had, uh, there was, outside of our house, there was a Jehovah's Witness, there was some Mormons, and there was me, the Baptist. It sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, <laughs> Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, a Baptist, right? And, uh, and I don't remember all that came up, but every time, I think it was Jehovah's Witness would bring up a point, I, I felt like I had to refute that point. And after, after an interaction that lasted 30, 45 minutes, maybe an hour, the Lord kind of convicted me because I, I don't know that I actually gave him the gospel, But I argued his points down. Y'all see what I'm getting at? Now, again, don't misunderstand. There are times that before we can give the gospel, we have to disarm them. Please don't misunderstand. But if we sacrifice preaching or witnessing to some lost soul in the name of just arguing them and to show them how wrong they are, then we have completely missed the point. And that is not what Jude is getting at when he tells us here to contend for The faith. What this does mean is that we are, if I could word it like this, we are to know what we believe, why we believe it, and communicate that in a wise and loving manner. 1 Peter 3.15, we're familiar with the passage, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Why do you believe what you believe? It always struck me there, and it's again, it doesn't necessarily say this explicitly, but in the book of Genesis, there seems to be a definitive moment when Jacob met with God. Now, what's interesting about that moment is that he knew of God and he'd been told of God, but until he wrestled with that angel himself and had that personal, Experience with God Himself. It's like God was never Jacob's God wholeheartedly until that moment. It was always Abraham, his grandpa's God. It was always Isaac, his dad's God. But at that moment, God became his God. Now, I've noticed in my generation and, and younger, I got to be careful saying that. Caleb will get mad at me because, you know, I'm like 100 years older than Caleb right now. Um, among the younger generation, when we think of God, it's always mom and dad's God. It's, it's pastor's God. It's the church's God. And the thing is, if you're here today and, and you know, 75 years and younger, brought on the application, um, he's to be our God. We're to know what we believe, why we believe it, and be able to communicate that in a way that is wise and loving. Now carrying on, we'll come back to this in just a moment, uh, but notice what the Bible goes on to say there. He says, "And exhort you that she earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints." I think that's a wonderful qualifier there. I've already touched on this lightly, but what are we to contend for? We're to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. I'm not to contend for my ideas. I don't know who drives a Chevy, who drives a Ford or who are enlightened and drive a Toyota, but my job is not to come here and tell you all this is what you should be driving, this is what you should be doing, this is what you should how you should be acting. The thing that we will fight for is for the faith once delivered Unto the saints. that—that That is our, th- those are our marching orders. We can't, we can't pick the verse apart and say I like the part about contending for the faith and then become argumentative, right? It has to be qualified by the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. Now he goes on to say there in, in verse number four, uh, he goes on to say in verse number four the reason why we are to contend and he says for there are Certain men crept in unawares. Now, the whole point of the book of Jude is is that of apostasy, all right? These were people who truly knew the gospel. These were not necessarily cults per se, but these were people who truly knew the gospel and, and then left it in a terrible way. But you see, that kind of thinking, that kind of ideology, it doesn't come in like a wrecking ball where it's undeniable. Creeps in. I was told, half jokingly, once by a man that was had been married much longer than me. Said that he learned that if there was something he wanted to buy, uh, he would look six months ahead, and you know, six months before he'd want to have that thing, he would bring up the idea to his wife and say, "I'd really like to have whatever it is." You fill in the blank. And the initial reaction is, "Well, it's expensive, or we can't afford it now." And you know, it's the initial reaction is, you know, we can't do it now. He said, five months, you know. I would say, well, I think I'm going to get one of these at some point. And after six months of slowly kind of just pushing that idea in there, six months down the road, they're okay with it. Now, that is not advice for those of you who are married, all right? Don't take that from me. I see the look on some of y'all's faces. That's not my point. But the idea was, you know, he, he doesn't just drop it on his wife and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this and risk harming the family. Just kind of slowly put it in there. On a more serious note, I'd heard of of... Two men back in the 90s, and I, I have yet to look up the book or verify the details of the story, but they said that there, the story goes that there are two men back in the 90s. One had, I believe, a, a degree in psychology, and the other had a degree in business, and they were both homosexual. And they got together and they said, well, you know, what's the best way to normalize the homosexual agenda? What, how do we make it, or, you know, back then, I mean, it, it was kind of looked down upon. Well, how, do we, how do we make it a, a norm, a social norm? The story goes. I said, "You know what? What we do is we slowly introduce it into society, slowly but surely, and in time, no one will think twice about it. Look back at the last thirty years. Very slowly, it started. You know, with more television shows and and movies that were more geared to adults, and now there are children's shows." where a character will have two moms or two dads or something like that. Did they just drop a bomb into society and say, this is how it's going? No, it crept in unawares. It it slowly works its way into people's mind to the point it's normal. Again, Jude says there, for there are certain men crept in unawares. He goes on to say, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I do like, on a side note, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, contending for the faith has been hard, is hard, and will be hard. Many Christians have given their life contending for the faith throughout history. I mean, it, it, history is marked by the blood of Christians who gave their life for it. But I like that Jude includes this. You know what? In the end, they were ordained for condemnation. That doesn't mean it won't be a struggle. That doesn't mean it won't be difficult. But in the end, they've been ordained for condemnation. But he goes on to say, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Now, the idea there—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's it's somewhat of a mysterious idea. And the best way I can put it, for the sake of time, is that they turn that which is—they turn that which is transcendently good. They turn that which is, that is holy and eternally good, the grace of God. You know, uh, when we stop and consider all that the Lord has done for us, I, I came across this, this video the other day, and it was some atheist, and and he said something along the lines of that if there is a God, who has let all the bad things happen in this world, all the the horrendous thing happen. that God must be a maniac, I think is what he said. You know, the truth is, God made everything good. I think I I touched on this a little bit the other night. God did everything good. You go to the book of Genesis, he said of everything that it was good. And you all know who messed it up? We did. We can't get mad at God for what's wrong in the world because we're what's wrong in the world. They turn the, the grace of God into they, they they turn that concept, that idea, that truth into something totally corrupt and depraved, something that which we ought to rejoice in. They turn it to something that we we despise and that we hate. And is it any wonder people that grow up in churches, people that have known the truth of God's word, they come to this place where they don't want anything to do with God. That's God's grace turned into lasciviousness. And he says, in denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They would deny God in our day and age. The most prominent way this is seen is flat-out atheism. They're, of all the possibilities of how this world came into existence, the least one that anyone will accept is that there must be a supreme being, a, a supreme creator who is the first cause of it all. That makes the most sense to me, but the world will go out of their way to deny the existence of God. But he goes on to say and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, during, well, around this time, to my understanding, when John wrote his epistle, there was this idea going around that they were promoting that Jesus Christ never actually had a human body. He was just a kind of this manifested spirit, if you will, that moved and worked without him in our body. And you see, that's a problem. Why is that a problem? Because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So if Jesus Christ did not have a body, then guess what? We can't be saved. That's what all of the Mosaic law pointed to. That is why the blood of the Son of God was shed on the cross of Calvary. It was to cover our sin. And so this idea that Jesus didn't have a body, that's why John kind of addresses this in his epistle. It's it's preposterous. If Jesus Christ did not have a body, then we cannot be saved. And so to deny the Lord Jesus Christ is to deny any. Semblance of hope that we could ever have. And that's exactly what these creeping men who are doing it unawares, that's exactly what they're doing. Now, this is of utmost importance, dear Christian, because, again, without, without the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we're in trouble. Let me let's let's bring this, uh, give a few things here and, and kind of touch on it in a more concrete way. All right. So we've established everything Judas said. So bear with me for just a few minutes. All right. In our day and age, right now, there are many philosophies and ideologies that is the blessing and the curse of of a melting pot of a country. And I I do believe that I believe we are blessed as a country, but so many different ideas come and go. Right. Now. That's not really important. We live in a sin-cursed world, and it's not surprising. There's No matter where you go, there's always going to be these these differing ideas. But it becomes a problem, and this is where contending for the faith becomes of utmost importance. It becomes a problem when the person and the work of Jesus Christ comes under attack. In our day and age, just to give a few Illustrations of this, and I'm sure some—I'm sure we some of you have kept up with it because you hear it everywhere. There is this idea of, you know, for instance, which referred to as social justice, equality, and equity. You know, everyone everyone should be equal in in every way. Doesn't matter what you do. Well, The problem with that is it kind of promotes the inherent goodness of man, which takes away the need of a savior. There are other ideas. There there's some ideas that are that have gained a lot of traction, where they say the, the essential problem of society is that of race. And if this is the color of your skin or that's the color of your skin, then, you know, that's not right. And you, you shouldn't feel good about the color of your skin. And if you just make, make things right because of the color of your skin, then, uh, th- then society would be better. Now, why is that a problem? Because the problem with any given society is not the color of our skin. The problem with any given society is our sin. And guess what? If we do not rightly diagnose the problem, then we will not rightly give the needed medicine, the needed balm. If Brother Holt comes to me and says, "Man, I I've got my eyes, or my eyes are killing me. Something's wrong with them. Something fell on him. I don't know what, and what's going on. I mean, I've got this wonderful cream that makes my feet feel really good. Put it on, maybe it'll help." Now, what's wrong? I have totally misdiagnosed the problem. It's at the other end of his body, so to speak. And so if I don't understand the problem, I can't give the proper medicine. So when the world comes along, and any given idea, I'm not just nitpicking a few of them, but when the world comes along promoting and saying what's wrong with society and Jesus Christ and, and what's wrong with society is not our inherent wickedness, not our inherent sin, then guess what? The guess what we don't need? We don't need the gospel. As long as we fix this this and this, Jesus Christ has no room in our society because that's not the problem. And so dear Christian, it is our calling that is society it is it is upon us God has placed the responsibility upon our shoulders that when The faith comes under attack. People will say that the problem is not sin. It is, you know, it is your level in society. It is the color of your skin. It is whatever it is. People come along and say, you know, sin is not the problem. It's this instead. We contend for the faith. We contend for the faith. Now, as as I bring this portion of, of the revival to a close, and, and you guys get the good preaching later, I, how long has the church been around in existence? You over know, the whole... It's 52. 52, okay. Uh, that's 70 years, isn't it? 2022, about 70 years, right? I'm doing my math right. I was homeschooled so much sure that's entirely right. Um 70 years. There has always been a generation who's contended for the faith. And I'm, I'm not saying that any of them were perfect. I don't know the history, so I don't know. I'm not, there's no perfect church. There are many Christians who, who've made mistakes. I full, reala- real, real, I full well realize that. It's too early for me. I didn't have my coffee yet. I understand. I'm not talking about a perfect, sinless church. I'm not talking about perfect, sinless generations of Christians but by God's grace, there's always been a generation of Christians who have stood for the truth and contended for the faith. And for 70 years, you all are still here. The Lord has blessed you all, and I, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart. The Lord has blessed this church with some young families, and I, it's, it's, it's encouraging to see that. And if you're here today, and uh, let's broaden the application, lest anyone say I'm being exclusive. If you're under 105 years old, is anyone here over 105? It doesn't look like it, just to be sure. Then do you all know now whose turn it is to contend for the faith? It's you all's turn. Now this takes us back to 1 Peter. This is why we need to know what we believe, and not just what we believe, but why we believe it. And be able to learn to communicate that in a very wise and loving way. One thing that I've I've noticed in growing up, of course, as five of us, is that at this stage in parenting, um, if Lena asks why, you know what I love to say? Because I said so. I don't need to stop and think about it. I don't need to come up with a reason why. Because I said so. I am the authority in her life because I said so. I tried that with my wife. Didn't go over very well. (laughs) But I've learned that when she's 15, 16, 17, 18, I'm going to have to have a reason of why I said so. Now, as Christians, what is our message? Our message is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our message is that we are dead in our sins. But as Peter put it, may we be ready to give an answer to every man who asks us of the reason of the faith." and hope that is within us. Dear church, and I don't know who our members and who are not members, I don't know who the oldest member is or the youngest member, but now it's our turn to step up. That's kind of scary. The Lord has put us here right now, right here. It's no accident that you all are here and there are rampant, unbiblical anti-gospel philosophies and ideologies going around. God, it was not an accident that you were born here and that you were placed here and now. I've always loved Mordecai I told Esther, he says, who knoweth whether thou hast come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Just some young Jewish girl. Apparently she was beautiful, but that was it. But God strategically placed her right then and right there for a very specific purpose. Purpose. Now, am I saying that you're, you're the next Esther? Probably not, especially by the whole. I don't know if you guys ain't got like anything like that. But God has sovereignly placed each and every one of you here right now. It's our turn to contend for the faith. So as time and opportunity prevails upon us to do so, dear church, dear saints at Went Place Baptist Church, may I echo the words of James. I exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. The scary thing is, is that what's on the line, it's not necessarily us. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, I'm 30 years old. I more or less know where I'm at in life. But what's the world going to look like when my daughter's my age? The reason we contend is not entirely for ourselves, although partially for ourselves. The reason we contend is because I've got a three-year-old little girl. And what this world's going to look like in 10 or 15 or 20 years, I have no idea. And if I don't step up now, do you know who's going to pay the price for that? My little girl is. Again, there are a lot of young families here and I am so thankful to see that what's on the line dear church is not our own comfort, not our own desires. Humanly, I know God's in control. I'd never want to take away from that. But what's on the line is the future of our children. So as these false teachings and these, again, unbiblical, anti-gospel ideologies. We are their ugly head. May we earnestly contend for the faith, dear church. We're here right now. God has placed us here. May we earnestly contend for the faith.